Stanford University. The Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, creating a more equal society for women and men through data-driven research and public education. So what we're going to talk about today, or what I'm going to talk about based on our research, is protest policing, as Londa said. And when we think about protest policing, at least in the US context, but certainly in uh, an international context as well, what we're referring to is the overt attempts by the state, and in particular, the police as sort of an arm of the state, to control dissidents, people who are making claims either against the state, against corporations, against educational institutions, medical facilities, and so on, people who are engaged in public protest, public demonstrations, and so on, and how the state responds to that with a whole variety of different sorts of strategies which we're going to talk about. And you might sort of ask how I got interested in this topic, and it really is an extension of something that Londa said in her introduction, and that is that for many years I've been really interested in state response to political and social movements. Typically I look at things like how the state responded to same-sex marriage bans, how the state responded to the Equal Rights Amendments and claims by groups um, working on either sides of these issues. But another response, of course, to political and social movements is repression or po protest policing. And so this is sort of an extension of some of the work that I've done before on how the state responds to dissidents. Now, I wanna be really clear. When I'm talking today about protest policing, we are really talking about these outside public protest demonstrations and how police respond to that. But of course, the state responds to dissidents in a lot of different ways, not just through, the, um, through policing. Of course, the state can do things such as institute projects like the Covert Intelligence Program, which some people maybe have heard of, which was uh, an FBI uh, organization and program that was um, uh, instituted under J. Edgar Hoover and which attempted to very covertly um, get, get into social movement organizations and repress them in a very different way than what we're talking about. The state also does things like pass pieces of legislation that might channel what it is that protesters do. For example, requiring that protesters fill out a permit before a protest is about to happen so that the state can figure out how they're going to respond preemptively to a protest event. There are a lot of ways that states respond to dissidents, but we're, today we're just talking about protest policing. And I want to give you a brief roadmap of what it is that we are doing. The first thing that I want to talk briefly about is looking at the question of whether or not protest policing really matters anymore. <clears throat> a lot of times people, particularly sociologists who are interested in studying protest policing, argue that this was really something that was a concern of the 1960s and really isn't important anymore. And I want to make the case today, I hope, that it is still important and um, that what some of what we've learned from the 1960s can actually come to bear on what it is that, or how it is that we understand how protests respond to police today. I mean, I mean, the police respond to protesters today. I'm also going to talk about the various strategies that police use to control, um, control protesters who are engaged in political activism, social activism. And then I want to talk very, very briefly about what some of our past research has shown about the use of these strategies. And then the piece that Magali and I are working on now is looking at different characteristics, in particular gender and race. Um, of protesters and how that might impact what it is that police do at pro public protest events. So that's sort of a roadmap of what we're going to do today. And the question about protest police 
uh, policing mattering anymore today? Should we care about this anymore? Was this really something that was a concern of the 1960s? I think is an important question. And I'm going to talk about the data in a minute from where this graph and another graph are, are coming from, because this is the data that we've been collecting. But I wanted to just show you what um, the proportion uh, what it looks like when we look at the police use of force over time. And what I mean by force here is physical force against protesters, um, equipment as well, such as tear gas, rubber bullets, really kind of it, it, very aggressive forms of policing at protest events. And what we see is something that I think um, has been referred to in the literature as a transition from escalated force to negotiated management. And what we see happening is that obviously the proportion of events that were met with police force was higher in the 1960s, particularly the late 1960s, and tends to wane a bit uh, through the 70s and 80s and seems to be perhaps increasing again in 1990. And this is referred to, in fact, as the, this transition from a period in which police were trained very much to respond aggressively to protest events, um, to a number of investigations of this that took place in the late 1960s, in particular in the wake of some of the urban riots of the 1960s. So um, a presidential commission was appointed in 1967 or 68 to investigate how it was that police were responding to the riots, urban riots. And one of the major conclusions of that report was that police were over-responding to the riots and were in fact also inciting more riots as a result. And one of the recommendations was that um, police should really be trained to deal with protesters in a much kindler and gentler way, in a way that respected the uh, freedom of speech of protesters, and in a way that could um, also, um, many of the, I mentioned these permits, right? Many of the permitting uh, policies came out of this, these particular studies of how protesters were treated. So one of the recommendations was, let's have protesters fill out permits. And when, once we know that they are expecting 100 protesters to uh, appear, we'll know that we should deploy this many um, police to help take care of this and so on. So we, we do see what looks like perhaps um, certainly a transition, but we also see, and the ACLU and other organizations have been really concerned with the post-WTO era of protest policing in the United States and a return, some have argued, to an escalated force model where, in a sense, the way the ACLU and other groups refer to this is the detente is over. No more, um, there, there's you know, a return to escalated force, um, a move away from negotiated management, and um, essentially when protesters are going to appear in mass, it will be fine to uh, deploy rubber bullets, fire hoses, um, and other more aggressive forms again. So I think that <clears throat> there are a number of organizations who are interested in uh, this particular issue, in particular in the post-WTA, TO era, and you know, when we think about some of the protests even this summer in Pittsburgh at the G20 and um, you know, other sorts of anti-globalization protests, I think we see um, uh, that, that we, there might be some truth to this return. So I think it's still really important to look at this and to figure out what our lessons or what lessons um, we, we have learned from the sort of earlier period of protest policing in the United States. Now, in thinking about the variety of police strategies that we're going to talk about today, there are a number of them. I've already mentioned a couple of them, but I want to just lay these out because these are how what we've been looking at in our data. And I promise you I'm going to tell you where these data come from in a minute, but I want to let you know what it is we're looking at. 
And uh, one of the things, of course, that police do is permit and control protests. I mentioned the permitting system in the United States that happens. One of the very interesting things about the permitting system in the United States that's really important to pay attention to is that not all protesters seek permits. Many protesters, in fact, deliberately refuse to seek a permit as a form of civil disobedience for protesters. But nonetheless, certainly there are, <clears throat> in many locales, um, the uh, uh, regulations that require that if somebody's going to hold a public protest demonstration, they should um, fill out one of these protests so that the city will know how to deal with it. Other ways that they control them, you can see that perhaps there's a little bit of loss of control in the, <laughs> the picture over here on your right, is to erect barricades and free speech zones and other kinds of ways to sort of cordon off where protesters can be. Here we see um, a protester who's breaking down the barricade and we um, might predict what's about to happen in this particular event. But this is another example of how uh, police and policing agents may try to control protesters. Uh, other things that police do, monitor and negotiate with protesters. So on uh, the left side, we have a police officer at a protest event um, explaining in a very somewhat calm fashion to some of the protesters what they can and cannot do. On the right side, this is actually from the UK, and it's a labor protest. And what you see are a lot of police, mounted police included, um, at a protest event, but not much is going on. They're watching, waiting, trying to see what's going on. And in our data, we, I'll show you some figures on this. Um, uh, this happens quite frequently. Police um, uh, come and monitor, negotiate, but not much happens, right? They also, of course, arrest protesters, and some of the uh, uh, events from the 1960s, in particular associated with the civil rights movement and anti-war movements, we see mass arrests, but oftentimes there maybe are just a few arrests at a particular protest event. A protest event. And then they use physical force and equipment to control protesters. Anything from, as I said, tear gas before, to rubber bullets, to fire hoses, bully clubs, um, and so on. Uh, and of course, many of our images, I think, of the 1960s and the 1960s wave of protest, I think we have graphic sort of collective memory of the use of force. But I think now we're being reminded about this again as we watch globally the anti-globalization protests as well. And we look, when we look over time in the US about this, there are a couple of things to notice. The first thing to notice is um, the, the, the sort of green line on top is police presence. And in many years, you'll notice that actually over half of the protest events don't even have police there monitoring them at all. And I think this is an, a nice corrective actually, because uh, or a corrective to people who study protest policing who often assume that all protest events are met with some kind of state response in the form of protest policing or uh, monitoring or something. Uh, but aside from that, we see obviously that, or, or I think what you might expect anyway, that um, the uh, presence of police is much more common than arrests, which is of course much more common than the use of force. And these um, are going to be some of the things that uh, Magali and I are going to talk about today uh, when we talk about the differential um, policing, protest policing of different groups. But I, before doing that, I wanted to actually talk about the past research that we've done very quickly to sort of set the stage and what it is that we've looked at with respect to the use of these broad policing strategies. And this work comes from a whole series of articles by myself and a former graduate student and uh, a couple of other uh, collaborators. And very quickly, what we've tried to do in our research is look at two broad explanations for what, what, what 
explains when police are going to show up and use force, um, uh, use arrest, and so on. And the first approach, which is sort of broadly referred to as the threat approach, essentially breaks the threat of protesters into two kinds of um, broad categories. The first is uh, situational threat. And that is the things that protesters are actually doing that might pose a threat to police who are on the ground and are charged with take, controlling that event. So a lot of protesters, for example, might threaten police in a certain way because larger protesters might be seen as harder to control, larger protest numbers of protesters. Using uh, ta certain <coughs> tactics that are confrontational or extremely confrontational might be another thing, of course, that police might feel quite threatened about. And this, of course, makes sense if um, protesters are throwing Molotov cocktails and bricks and um, uh, blockading themselves in buildings this is a very different kind of protest event than a candlelight vigil, for example. And then, of course, as I mentioned, using violence, damaging property, and so on. But we also look at what we refer to as a diffuse threat, which is a very different kind of a threat that may not be threatening to police on the ground, but might be very threatening to the state. And this um, uh, would be, um, it, for example, uh, um, articulating radical goals, revolutionary goals, ideas about throwing over the government, for example, or um, ideas about targeting the government in very specific ways, are not necessarily threatening to police agents on the ground who are um, controlling the protest event, but might worry um, the elites in the United States or some other country who might then, of course, um, either put more funding into police policing of protest or charge police with um, doing something different than what they've been doing in, in the past. And the other sort of uh, uh, idea that we've been looking at in this past research is what we refer to as the blue approach or the police agency approach. And what we look at here is really the, the claim that a lot of protest events may not be policed or policed very heavily because there just aren't the resources in, in the police unit or the police agency in the, given, in the particular area. And so we've looked at things like how large the police force is, the budgetary um, uh, budget, budgets of the po particular police unit responsible for an area, um, and also the presence of specialized tactical units that might be there to deal specifically with protest events and other kinds of large crowd control issues. And what we find, essentially, is and this is probably not all that surprising, but I think it's important to show it, is absolutely unequivocal support for this threat approach. Um, so when protesters use violence, when they throw things, when they damage property, when um, they target the government, uh, when they use multiple tactics. So for example, if you've got an event that's quite large, and a lot of different tactics are being used by protesters. You've got some people, you know, building fires, and other people, you know, uh, uh, looting something, and then others speaking, and others singing, and so on. Police, this is tactically very difficult for police to figure out what to do with, and they're, what often we see happening is over-policing of these kinds of events. Um, so this, of course, I think makes sense, and it makes sense also from a police training point of view. This is actually from a training manual of police, and what you see um, is officers' response, um, sort of here along the horizontal axis, tends to be lower when the level of resistance is low, when they're just making verbal threats and gestures and so on. But as um, 
protesters escalate to firearms attacks or weapons attacks and so on, you see that the officer's, officer's response also increases. And so this is, in fact, how police are trained often, that, you know, that's often referred to as proportional response. Police should respond in proportion to what it is that the subjects, and in this case, protesters, are doing. What I think is going to be interesting, or what I'm going to sort of foreshadow what Magali and I are going to talk about in the sort of piece of this where we look at the differential um, policing of protesters, is what we see is very, a, a sort of a, a different slope on that line, if you will, with different kind, different groups. And um, I'll get to that in just a minute. I don't want you to think that I'm going to forget that part of this. When we look at the sort of blue approach, this approach actually, uh, we were not pleased about this because we thought there would be a lot of traction in arguments about the size of the police force and how well-funded they were and how, how professional they were, whether or not their chief took part in various kinds of professional associations and so on. We thought this would really be important. But we find actually very weak um, support for many of these policing arguments. And so um, that's it was surprising to us, and I'm not sure really why, and I hope we're going to investigate some, um, some of this in a little bit more detail later on. But now, to sort of get to the heart of what it is that Magali and I wanted to talk about today is this question of whether or not all protesters are equally likely to be policed and policed at similar kinds of levels. And from the original title of the talk, you probably know the, some of the answer to this or the punchline, but I think it's actually pretty intriguing to look at this um, it, it sort of empirically. And what we are going to look at and what we're going to show you information and data on is the question of African Americans and women as protesters and how they're treated by police agents. And we, we argue that African-American protesters, for a lot of reasons, but in particular based on what's referred to as ethnic competition theory, ought to be more likely to be policed and more likely to be policed heavily than non-African-American protesters. And we argue that part of the ethnic competition theory basically leads us to sort of hypothesize that um, you know, based on a lot of work done on uh, violence towards African Americans and differential um, acts or differential treatment in the larger criminal justice system, leads us to believe that when African Americans are are um, uh, presenting a threat, whether that be an economic threat or a political threat, the dominant group will respond in attempts to try to eliminate that threat. And one of the largest, I think, and, and, and one of the, the, the most important ways African American and other groups can pose a political threat is by political protest, which is obviously a very overt uh, form of, of you know, political claims making. With respect to female protesters, we actually entered this with two different hypotheses. The first was that women, um, because they're more likely to be stereotyped as communal and less agentic, will be considered less threatening and therefore treated more gently by police than non-female protesters. Now, alternatively, we also thought that perhaps it's the case that there's a lot of research that shows, of course, that women, when they behave in a counter-normative fashion, in a very agentic and dominant fashion, are likely to be penalized more heavily. So our sort of alternative hypothesis here was that actually it's going to go the opposite way, that female protesters, because they're violating this norm of behaving in a communal and uh, a gentle manner, are going to be penalized much more heavily for this. So we wanted to look empirically at that. 
Now, the data source that I keep promising I was going to tell you about is um, from a National Science Foundation funded project that took place over a 10 or 11 year period um, with uh, myself and Susan Olzak and Doug McAdam, who are both on the uh, faculty here at Stanford in sociology, and John McCarthy, who's on the faculty at Penn State University. And what we set out to do, and why it took so long to do this, is collect all articles from the New York Times over the 1960, it's actually now through the 1995 period, but we haven't cleaned that last, those last, uh, the 1991 through 95 data, but collect all articles on protest events in the U United States, photocopy them, and then content code each one of these with a several multiple page coding form for each of these things, asking questions about what the issues were that happened at the protest event, how many participants were there, what they did, uh, how the police responded, and whether anybody was killed or injured, and so on and so forth. Um, and what we have in the data set, and actually now that we have through 95, we're gonna have more like 23,000 protest events, is data on 23, 22, 23,000 protest events um, from the New York Times. Now we can talk a little bit if you want in the question and answer period about some of the things that we try to do to control for obvious news source biases, but we can get to that later because we've done some work on that and um, have written uh, some, I hope, guides on how to deal with some of these biases as well. So the question again, about what we can say about the differential protest policing of these two major groups, African-American protesters and female protesters. First, with respect to African-American protesters in the 1960 to 1990 period, just very quickly looking at the proportion of events which were met with police presence. Again, this is just police showing up, monitoring, maybe talking to, um, but not really doing anything at all at the protest event with respect to policing, not doing, you know, not trying to control it in any way other than being a presence. We see that in almost all years, the African-American protests had a much higher proportion of police presence. And um, that, of course, is the red dotted line. I'm not sure if you can see that the, the font is too small. But what we see, and a couple of things I just wanted to point out about this graph, these peaks that you see in the uh, red dotted line, the African-American events, respond to um, or, or, uh, a, a couple of important uh, sets of events. The late 1960s, what you see, of course, are urban riots, right, and almost all of the African-American protests were met with some sort of police presence, which I think makes um, some sense. In uh, the 1977 peak that you see was actually, some of you may remember the blackouts in, the, in New York that were associated with riots, um, many of which had African-Americans present and of course were policed uh, quite heavily. Also riots in Chicago in that year. Uh, in the late 1980s, uh, what we have is riots in Tampa and Miami, but we also have the Bensonhurst events as well. I'm not sure if anybody remembers those, but um, a, uh, uh, an African-American uh, man was in Bensonhurst buying a car or something like this and was attacked, it was a hate crime. Um, a group of Italian um, Americans uh, attacked and killed him and then following that particular event there were riots in Bensonhurst. And so that's why you see those particular peaks associated largely with riots. When we look at arrests, African-American versus non-African-American events, again, you see um, uh, in almost all years, a higher proportion of African-American events were met with um, arrests than were non-African-Americans. There are some deviations that you see, and these tend to be the, the early 1970s. 
um, tends to be, I don't know if I can, you can see that, but this, this sort of period here where more non-African American um, events were met with uh, arrests had to do with uh, large peace protests, anti-Vietnam War protests. The, um, the, the sort of peak here in the mid-1980s had to do with anti-Central America um, U.S. involvement in Central America protests, lots of large protests that were met with a lot of police presence, but African Americans weren't particularly active in that, um, in that, uh, those particular issues. And in the late 1980s, you had a lot of anti-abortion protests and abortion-related protests that African Americans were not particularly um, involved in, but were met with um, some arrests and so on. So you, you know, you can see historically why we might have um, some differences with respect to arrests. Force is pretty interesting um, because it returns to a pattern where in almost all years you see that a higher proportion of African-American events, events were met with um, force. Now, we can pause for a minute and say, well, all right, well, that's great. That's terrific, except for we're now in the same um, boat that a lot of the driving well black uh, literature is in, and that's that we're not controlling for subject demeanor, as that literature would refer to. So one of the problems with some of the driving while black literature is that it's very difficult to control for what is referred to as subject demeanor. So um, su subject um, demeanor. So what, what happens if African Americans are behaving in a more confrontational fashion, right? I showed you the threat graph, right? So police are trained to respond with um, a, a much uh, stronger response when um, a protest event is more threatening. So what if we control for that? And so what you're going to see next is essentially just a graph of the predicted probability of police presence, and all that I'll do arrests and force. And these come from a multivariate um, analysis, which where we hold all of those other things, those threat factors that we um, found in all of our previous research to really um, explain police presence, arrests, and violence. So we hold those all constant at their means, counter demonstrators, confrontational tactics, um, the number of tactics, tactics that are used, radical goals, and all of that stuff. And what you see is the top line, which is maybe a little bit hard to see in red, is the predicted probability of police presence um, for African-American events, and the bottom line is for non-African-American events. You see overall a decline, which I think is, corresponds to the very first graph that I showed you, which was a general decline in protest policing generally um, in this period, which I think is going back up again. But, uh, but you also see a substantial gap that doesn't narrow. See the same thing with respect to um, arrests. Here, neither, uh, you know, the, the decline isn't quite as sharp, but you still see that gap. Um, African-American events are much more likely controlling for all of the uses of uh, tact tactics and so on, which um, we know lead to police um, use of arrests. And then finally, uh, the police use of force. I suppose the good thing is, is the police use of force has declined overall <laughs> in this period. Um, however, you do see, <coughs> excuse, excuse me, you do see that the gap is still there. It's narrowing a bit um, towards 1990. So, um, you know, in sum, I think that, um, you know, the first sort of takeaway here is that even controlling for things that we know lead police and police are trained to you know, respond in a certain way at protest event, even controlling for those things, we still see a very, very substantial gap between um, how police respond to, respond to African-American versus non-African-American protest events. But what about women? 
And with women, uh, you know, again, we had two different hypotheses here. One is, well, you know, women are stereotyped as um, very communal and less agentic and less threatening, so perhaps they'll be less likely to um, uh, have the similar kind of response that African Americans. The alternate hypothesis is, yeah, but when women are being political, they're violating some kind of a norm and this stereotype and therefore may be over-policed uh, because of this. So uh, I'm going to do a similar sort of analysis here with the female protest events in uh, the data set. I'm going to say a little bit more about these um, in particular because this is um, you know, sort of the, the piece that Magali and I are working on right now, the female protests, and we've been looking at a lot of these specific protest events, and I hope to give you a flavor of what some of these protest events were about as well. So first, um, here, women again is the red dotted line, uh, and the green is non-women events. And what you see is in almost all years, with respect to police presence, almost all years, but some very notable exceptions, you see that um, women's events were less likely to draw police presence to them. Um, so the, some of the exceptions, in 1964, there were a number of school desegregation cases, in the, particularly in the South, right? And women were very active in this particular movement. And because it was associated with the civil rights movement, um, in part, and because of the sort of policing of the civil rights movement, we saw a lot of police present at these kinds of events. Sometimes they were violent and so on, so we, we um, saw a lot of police present here. The 1976 peak uh, is associated with the Equal Rights Amendment and protests about the Equal Rights Amendment um, in the United States. 1983 was a really interesting year um, because of the women's peace encampment that uh, took place in Seneca Falls, which is in upstate New York. And th this is uh, the location of one of the largest nuclear arms repositories in the country at that time. I think it's now closed. But um, in 1982 and 83, and I think 84, women staged a huge encampment. Women came from all over the world to protest um, the sort of nuclear arms and to protest this particular site as well. But also, um, of course, it had sort of a, a, a larger feminist agenda as well. And then in the 1989, we have some abortion events that were met with a lot of police presence as well that had women at them. So in these periods when there were a higher proportion of police presence at women's events, we can sort of you know, see what kinds of events explain that or what kinds of issues were being protested. Uh, again, you see a similar pattern with, the, with, the expect, with, with, the, uh, with respect to arrests. So you see, uh, you know, again, that a higher proportion of women's um, of, of non-women's events were met with uh, arrest, and the the exceptions happen to be the school desegregation um, events again, and also the Seneca Falls events. A lot of arrests happened um, in the period that women had the encampment, the peace encampment outside of the uh, army depot there. And then force. One thing that's really interesting is none of our events, our women's events, had force following uh, the 1980 period, which is actually um, pretty interesting, I think. Uh, but again, you see uh, the peak, the 1964, this, this period, women, again, very active in school desegregation issues. Peace, women were also very active in the peace movement and many events, and I'm going to talk a little bit about women strike, for pe women strike for Peace, one core organization in that particular movement that is responsible for some of these um, events that uh, were met with police force. And then in the 19, 1978, we both had peace movement and also equal rights amendment um, events that were met with force as well. But again, like the African-American 
protest events. We're not controlling for anything here. So maybe, you know, women just don't use confrontational tactics ordinarily. Maybe that's what explains this. So when we do our uh, multivariate <coughs> analysis, we see actually the opposite of what we saw, although, although the gap isn't as great, we still see the opposite with respect to police presence that, that we saw with respect to African Americans. We see that the uh, women is the red line on the bottom, a lower predicted probability of police presence, and again, both decrease over time, but the gap is still there. So women, even controlling for the use of all of those kinds of um, very situational tactics and things that might cause a, a, a high degree of threat to police, women are still less likely to, um, to uh, draw police presence to their events. We also see um, with respect to arrests, um, similarly, women much less likely. One of my favorite events from the data set with respect to this was this event that took place in 1968. And women were described in this newspaper article of going on a rampage in welfare centers in New York. They were ripping phones off walls, throwing tables and chairs, throwing files around, and the police are described as standing there and looking on and no arrests were made, right? I mean, can you imagine if an African-American were to do this? <laughs> yeah, uh, um, unfortunately, you know, when one of my, uh, sort of one of my, you know, the, the title was something like, women go on a rampage at welfare centers. And so, but also gives you a flavor of some of the things that women were protesting about in the late 1960s. With respect to force, uh, you know, we see actually, of course, here again, that this, the gap is narrowing over time. But again, we see that women's events are much less likely to be met with force. And you know, one example of a protest event um, where a women's protest event where force was, was actually, I'm going to come back to this, I already mentioned Women's Strike for Peace, but in 1967, women, um, the, the Women's Strike for Peace organization held a demonstration, and it was a permitted demonstration, I mentioned this permitting system, but they had, they, had, they had said that only 100 people would show up, and this was going to be at the White House, and 500 people showed up. And so, you know, the police, this of course violated what was supposed to happen and the police came and women are described as lying all over the ground with bloody heads and so forth and so on. And, um, but this is, and, and I'm going to come back to the Women's Strike for Peace in just a minute because it's part of what has intrigued Magalie and I, and, and I and we're going to sort of be thinking about this in the next project from here. So we do want to get to questions. Yes, oh yes, so I'm, I'm almost done, I'm almost okay. done, yeah. So conclusions, <laughs> there you go. So the, the general conclusion here is that holding constant all of these standard indicators of threat, in particular situational threat, at a protest event, we find that African Americans were much more likely to be policed and policed heavily. Um, this we refer to as the protesting while black phenomenon, and that female prote uh, protesters were much less likely to, that these sort of gender stereotypes I think persist, um, even when women behave in a counter-normative and agentic and political fashion. And I think the implications are pretty clear for this. And one is, academically, I think this is interesting, of course. Um, but I also think it's important to protesters, too, to recognize that there is this differential response, and particularly important, of course, to African-American protesters who, we might argue, are um, uh, responded over, are met with over-response, right? And I think this might be considered another example of systemic bias against African-Americans in the criminal justice system. But I, I also think for women that while the outcome might be better, less likely to be beaten up by police and so forth, it is, I think, evidence of the, the, the sort of um, the, the, the strength of this kind of bias staying on despite, um, you know, be behaving in a very agentic sort of fashion. And I think that that's also uh, important as well. 
and then just quickly, I wanted to mention this future research project that Magalie and I are working on in the um, winter and spring quarter. So one of the things that we got really interested in, and the Women's Strike for Peace was one of the examples that got us really interested in this, is what about the claims? What is it that women um, are taught, what, what is it that in our period they're actually, what are their goals? What are the kinds of issues that they're articulating at a given protest event? And what's one of the things that's pretty interesting is that only about 27% of our women's protest events are articulating feminist kinds of claims. Um, peace was, of course, another big one, as was education. And I kind of hinted at that when I was talking about the school desegregation cases, um, the, and that, of course, um, kind of uh, uh, blends between civil rights and education, obviously. Um, peace movements were big, abortion and social welfare. This other category is a huge catch-all category of a lot of different things, from anything from death penalty to um, victims' rights to uh, 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 you know, claims about apartheid, for example, are in here too, but all other kinds of claims. But one of the things that we're interested in, and this I promise is the last slide, um, <laughs> is the issue of fuzziness of claims and women's, the women's movement outcomes. And one of the things that uh, the organizational sociology, sociology literature has um, discovered is that when organizations anyway don't have a coherent identity, they're often met with negative kinds of outcomes. So for example, when um, a, a particular feature film, this is one of my favorite examples from this literature, is categorized as a Western, it does better than when it's categorized as a, say, a Western musical. Because either the audience doesn't get it, like what is a Western musical, and therefore is less likely to go to this movie and, and so on, or because they're spreading themselves too thin. And there are arguments about why both of these mechanisms might be at work. So what Magalie and I are looking at uh, now is the claim, the, the, the claim that is made by given protest events and also by women's organizations. And one of the things that we're finding is that at the, at the event level, we find that when a, the claims are what we call fuzzy, they span kinds of categories. So women, um, women's protesters who are Claiming, making claims about feminism and peace are much more likely to um, get police response. And in fact, that effect of women's, um, women being less likely to be protest is, is, um, is decreased when we um, start looking at this fuzziness of claims. We're also looking at organizations, at women's social movement organizations, and looking at what kinds of goals they're articulating and how it is that, that or how that might affect the survival of that organization. And we find the same thing. Women's organizations that kind of cross boundaries, women in peace or women in civil rights, are less likely to survive than a straight on uh, women's organization. And I think that this um, helps us to explain, this is all really new, we're just sort of, you know, this is hot off the press, really. But one of the things I think that this sort of hints at anyway is um, something for women and women a women's activists to think about, you know, the, the sort of trade-off between coalition building and losing focus, I think, is, is really what we want to try to get at here for people who are interested in social movements. So, mm -hmm. thank you. <laughs>